I found the yo-yo the day before Christmas Eve, in the way one does come across these long-forgotten relics of the past, while I was tidying up some of the unexamined papers which clutter my elderly life. It was my seventy-third birthday, and I suppose I was overtaken by a fit of memento mori. Most of my affairs were tidied up years ago, but there is always a muddle somewhere. Mine was in six old box files on a top shelf of the wardrobe in my little-used spare bedroom, normally out of sight and out of mind. But now, for no particular reason, they intruded into my thoughts with an irritating persistence. Their contents ought to be sorted through, and the papers either filed or destroyed. Henry and Margaret, my son and daughter-in-law, would expect to find that I, the most meticulous of fathers, had spared them even this minor inconvenience on my death. There was nothing else I needed to do. I was waiting, suitcase packed, for Margaret to come in the car to collect me for a family Christmas I would infinitely have preferred to spend alone in my temple flat. To collect me. That is what we can so easily be made to feel at seventy-three. An object, not exactly precious, but likely to be brittle, to be carefully collected, conscientiously cared for, and as conscientiously returned. I was ready too early, as I always am. There were nearly two hours to be got through before the car arrived. Time to sort out the boxes. The box files, bulging and one with the lid wrenched loose, were tied with thin cord. Undoing this and opening the first box, I was met by a half-forgotten nostalgic smell of old papers. I carried the box to the bed, settled down, and began leafing through a miscellany of papers from my prep school days. Old school reports, some of the inked comments yellowing, others as clear as if written yesterday. Letters from my parents, still in their fragile envelopes, with the foreign stamps torn away to give to school friend collectors. One or two school exercise books with highly marked essays, which I had probably kept to show my parents on their next furlough. Lifting one of these, I discovered the yo-yo. It was just as I remembered it. Bright red, glossy, tactile, and desirable. The string was neatly wound with only the looped end for the finger showing. My hand closed round the smooth wood. The yo-yo precisely fitted my palm. It felt cold to the touch, even to my hand, which is now seldom warm. And with that touch, the memories came flooding back. The verb is trite but accurate. They came like a full tide, sweeping me back to the same day sixty years ago. December the 23rd, 1936. The day of the murder. I was at prep school in Surrey, and was, as usual, to spend Christmas with my widowed grandmother in her small manor house in West Dorset. The rail journey was tedious, requiring two changes, and there was no local station, so she usually sent her own car and driver to collect me. But this year was different. The headmaster called me into his study to explain. I've had this morning a telephone call from your grandmother, Charlcourt. It appears that her chauffeur is unwell and will be unable to fetch you. I've arranged for Carter to drive you down to Dorset in my personal car. I need him until after lunch, so it will be a later arrival than usual. 
Lady Charcourt has kindly offered him a bed for the night. And Mr. Michaelmas will be travelling with you. Lady Charcourt has invited him to spend Christmas at the manor, but no doubt she has already written to you about that. She hadn't, but I didn't say so. My grandmother wasn't fond of children and tolerated me more from family feeling, I was, after all, like her only son, the necessary heir, than from any affection. She did her dutiful best each Christmas to see that I was kept reasonably happy and out of mischief. There was a sufficiency of toys appropriate to my sex and age, purchased by her chauffeur on written suggestions from my mother, but there was no laughter, no young companionship, no Christmas decorations, and no emotional warmth. I suspected that she would much have preferred to spend Christmas alone than with a bored, restless, and discontented child. I don't blame her. I have reached her age, and I feel exactly the same. But as I closed the door of the headmaster's study, my heart was heavy with resentment and disgust. Didn't she know anything about me or the school? Didn't she realize that the holiday would be boring enough without the sharp eyes and sarcastic tongue of Mike the Menace? He was easily the most unpopular master in the school, pedantic, over-strict, and given to that biting sarcasm which boys find more difficult to bear than shouted insults. I know now that he was a brilliant teacher. It was to Mike the Menace that I largely owe my public school scholarship. Perhaps it was this knowledge and the fact that he had been at Balliol with my father which had prompted my grandmother's invitation. My father might even have written to suggest it. I was less surprised that Mr. Michaelmas had accepted. The comfort and excellent food at the manor would be a welcome change from the Spartan living and institutional cooking at school. The journey was as boring as I had expected. When the elderly Hastings was at the wheel, he would let me sit in the front seat beside him and keep me happy with chat about my father's childhood. Instead, I was closeted in the back with a silent Mr. Michaelmas. The glass partition between us and the driver was closed, and all I could see was the back of the rigid uniform hat, which the headmaster always insisted that Carter should wear when acting as chauffeur, and his gloved hands on the wheel. Carter wasn't really a chauffeur, but was required to drive the headmaster when his prestige demanded this addition to his status. For the rest of the time, Carter was part groundsman, part odd job man. His wife, frail and gentle-faced, and looking as young as a girl, was matron at one of the three boarding houses. His son, Timmy, was a pupil at the school. Only later did I fully understand this curious arrangement. Carter was what I had overheard one of the parents describe as a most superior type of man. I never knew what personal misfortune had brought him to his job at the school. The headmaster got Carter's and his wife's services cheaply by offering them accommodation and free education for their son. He probably paid them a pittance. If Carter resented this, we, the boys, never knew. We got used to seeing him about the grounds, tall, white-faced, dark-haired, and, when not busy, playing always with the red yo-yo. It was a fashionable toy in the 1930s, and Carter was adept at the spectacular throws which the rest of us practiced with our own yo-yos but never achieved. Timmy was an undersized, delicate, nervous child. He sat always at the back of the class, neglected and ignored. One of the boys, a more egregious snob than the rest of us, said, 
I don't see why we have to have that creep Timmy in class with us. That's not why my father pays the fees. But the rest of us didn't mind one way or the other. And in Mike the Menace's class, Timmy was a positive asset, diverting from the rest of us the terror of that sharp, sarcastic tongue. I don't think in Mr. Michaelmas's case the cruelty had anything to do with snobbery, or even that he recognised his behaviour as cruel. He was simply unable to tolerate wasting his teaching skills on an unresponsive and unintelligent boy. But none of this occupied my mind on the journey. Sitting well apart from Mr. Michaelmas in the corner of the car, I was sunk in a reverie of resentment and despair. My companion preferred to be driven in darkness as well as silence, and we had no light. But I had brought with me a paperback and a slender torch, and asked him if it would disturb him if I read. He replied, Read by all means, boy, and sank back into the collar of his heavy tweed coat.